Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. When you consider your income, are you content with it? Do you use it wisely? Are you grateful to God for what He's given you? How do you use your money? Are you a wise spender following a budget? Do you save for emergencies? Do you tithe faithfully and give offerings to God's work? Most importantly about money is where is your heart towards money? Is money the focus of your life? Do you work hard so you can get more money, neglecting God and family members and other important aspects in your life? Is money an opportunity to help people in need, to use to be sharing the gospel? Or do you often worry that you don't have enough money or that you need more? As we continue our study of Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, he touches two very important issues to us. One is money and the other is worry. I'm Debbie Blank, praising God for his teaching on these subjects since I've needed them and used these words of wisdom many times throughout my life. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. It's been said that money makes the world go around, and money is one of the top things people worry about in life. Politically, Bill Clinton's presidential campaign focused on the motto, It's the economy, stupid. And some of you may remember the famous commercial for E.F. Hutton Financial Advisors. In it, a noisy restaurant goes completely silent as people lean into eavesdrop to hear E.F. Hutton's advice because, quote, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Money is important. It can help, hurt, or change people in good and bad ways. But the most famous money expert in the world is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ speaks, we should listen. Today, we begin part four of our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Understanding where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, let's go back to see that Jesus has been telling his disciples in Matthew 5 and 6, and then next week and starting in chapter 7, about the importance of having their righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So these disciples are to follow the law because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But they're to do it in a stronger way with their heart completely involved. So as we move on to different disciplines and different teachings from Jesus, he's got that same focus. The focus being that our righteousness needs to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. We need to take important matters spiritually and physically to heart and make sure that our heart is right with God. And then we're not hypocrites in how we use our money or our time or prayers or any of the other disciplines that we have. We are to use them wisely for the Lord. One of the many problems that the leaders had was a love of money. In Luke 16, 14, it talks about the Pharisees and it says, Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Jesus. And that was when Jesus was talking about money. So Jesus wants our attitude to be right. We need to understand that all of our money and the opportunity to make money comes from God. God knows our needs. He has a purpose and a plan for us, and he wants us to use it wisely for his glory. 
when we do what God wants us to do with our money, he will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'd rather follow Jesus' financial advice than I would E.F. Hutton or anybody else because Jesus is completely right and we know what the benefits will be. And Jesus speaks very directly and very sternly to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That is such a pronouncement in biblical language. It means doom to those who practice this. And these were the Pharisees, the holy men of God by the standards of that time. And Jesus is telling them that they are hypocrites. Jesus is now telling his disciples that they need to use their wealth in a different way than they're seeing the hypocritical Pharisees doing. And he tells us that in Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves rake in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As I'm reading this, I'm kind of chuckling to myself thinking, when we're young and we first get married, boy, that's what we want to do. We want to get a house and we want to fill the house with all kinds of treasures and all kinds of things that make us feel good or that we think we need. That's just the way we are. We want things And our culture promotes wanting more things, makes us unsatisfied with what we have so that we'll buy more. Jesus wants our attitude to be different. I will tell you, as we grow older, I don't want those things. I want to get rid of the things that I wanted. I want my kids to take them and they don't want them. (laughs) So as we get older, we recognize that we don't want the treasures of earth. We want the treasures in heaven. But don't wait until you get older. Jesus is telling this to everybody now. Back then when he says to them, you're storing up your treasures where moth and rust destroy, that's because their wealth was really their goods, it was their animals, it was their things. Gold and silver, well, that's the same way with us. We see our things decay or break down. We, however, have a lot of our wealth in the stock market or in 401ks. But that's still the idea of putting our wealth to use for our benefit not for heavenly benefit. Why do we store up our treasure on earth? Most people's hearts are on this world, so they want everything they can possibly have because they think it's going to make them happy. Things don't make us happy. God makes us happy, joyful, as we call it, blessed. People make us blessed. Things don't. They don't last. When you buy that new car and you just are so excited about it and you sign a loan agreement where you're paying off $750 or $1,000 a month, you don't care because you're so happy. Until you get to about the second or the third year of the car and the car is starting to break down, you're having to pay for fixing it, and you're paying this exorbitant amount, you're not so happy anymore. So things don't make us happy. Jesus knew that, and he knew that our focus needs to be in heaven, not on this earth. So he tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 7, labor, performing with your own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. After all, we've brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. Our focus needs to be on working, obviously to pay for our needs, but also for ministering to other people. Because when we die, we're not going to take it with us. 
Well, it's back into focusing on things and focusing on the way to get those things, and that's money. So it's back into that kind of a snare, which reminds me of 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, where Paul explains, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What a terrible warning. God cares for us, and it makes him sad to think that we could fall into traps like that. Oh, but we do, because the more money we have, the more money we want. The more things we have, the bigger houses and nicer cars that we want. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. The only problem is where our heart is with our money. And that's why Jesus says in this passage, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where is your treasure? Is it in your money? Or is your heart right with God so that money's just a necessity of this world and you're glad to have it and you may save up for the future and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a wise thing to do. But where's your heart in all of this? What do you treasure most? If you look at your checkbook, you're going to see where your heart is because you're going to notice where you spend your money. Are you giving it to help other people? Are you giving it to the church to share the gospel? Are you blessing ministries? Are you using it for ways that God has told you to use it? See, one of the things we've talked about before is that we need to seek God for how he would have us use our resources and our time and our prayers and our almsgiving and all those things. It's dependent on what God would have us do. When we look at J.C. Penney, he was a very wealthy man. He gave away 90% of his income and lived off of 10%. Now, we do just the opposite. If we tithe our 10%, then we live off of 90% of it. And people oftentimes are begrudgingly giving God their 10% or aren't giving it at all. Because the fact is God doesn't need our money. God needs a heart. And what he wants of our money, the first fruits of our income, is to show that we recognize that God has given us everything we have. And we want to honor him by giving it back to his work. In the Old Testament, they give animals and what they had, the produce. They gave it to the temple. That was their way of honoring God with their first fruits. And you and I are to honor God with our first 10% of our income. That's called a tithe. And that's just the beginning. If you look at the Old Testament, they gave over 23% of their income to help in offerings and tithes and other ways to serve God's people. Is that what we're doing? Are we giving our money for God's purpose? And are we asking God where he would have us give it? I believe firmly that we are to support our local churches. That's first and foremost, because that's the temple, you might say, for us. But there's also other people and ministries that God may lead us to support. And that's important, too. But after our church. So giving to the poor, giving to our church, those things are not just giving, but they're investments in the kingdom of God. We talk about investing money here on earth and having stuff for our future and how important that is. And it is. But we need to balance that. I love the J.C. Penney story because where do we get to the point where we realize what is enough for us 
and what, as God has told us, we should make so that we can share with others. That sharing is good for the community, for the people here. He says the poor are always going to be with us, so there's no excuse to not give to the poor. There's always an opportunity. But that is an investment in the future, in the kingdom of God. We can't take it with us, but we can invest it in God's kingdom. God tells us in Philippians 4, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He will meet our needs, whatever they are. It might not be easy. We might end up at the open our mission, getting them met there. But he will take care of us. And we need to trust him if we have our hearts set on him rather than our money. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. No, he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. I knew a woman one time who said, I will be happy when I have a diamond ring, a mink coat, and a Lincoln Continental. Well, she died with numerous diamond rings, seven mink coats, and her Lincoln Continental. She wasn't happy, and she wasn't content because her love was on money rather than on God. We need to ask ourselves if we're being good stewards, if we're being trustworthy, as we're told of 1 Corinthians 4.12, with our finances. Because that passage about wealth goes on to say in Matthew 6, 22 to 24, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, where's your heart in your idea of finances? If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, that is very clear. Where's our heart going to be? We cannot say, well, my heart's towards God, and then spend all of our money doing what we want to do, because it's not we're serving two masters. As I think of that statement, I think of the first commandment in Exodus 20. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. With our hearts not in the right place, our money is our God. You can't have your foot in both the world and in heaven. We have to be totally devoted to God in our hearts. That's what he's telling us here. Nothing wrong with wealth or money. Nothing wrong with saving it for the future. But it is wrong when our heart's wrong about money, and it's all about us. And when we let money become our master, that is idolatry, and so many people are stuck in that. And I like the point that you made where it has to do with trusting God. He will provide for us. We have to trust him. And we could give examples, both of us, of how God has met our needs over and over when we've trusted in him and followed him, even when times were difficult. I tell you, if you will turn to God and ask for his help, he will give it to you when you're willing to follow him, make him Lord of your life, and put your heart on him, not on your problems or on your money. And speaking of problems, that's the last part in Matthew chapter 6 is talking about worry. He says in Matthew six twenty-five to 34, for this reason I say to you, and I stop and think, for what reason is he saying this next part about worry to us? because most of us end up worrying about money at one time or another. So he's telling them, don't worry about money. He goes on to say, do not be worried about your life, so as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Our basic needs are food and clothing. We always say food, clothing, and shelter, but 
We can sleep outside under the stars. People do it all the time. Food and clothing are our basic needs. That's what he's saying here. And we're not to worry about where they're coming from. Our basic needs now, we've made them to be a lot more than they were back then when they were simpler. But the point is, don't worry. Don't worry about money or health, or family members or relationships or jobs. Don't worry about them. Because what does worry cause? causes health problems, it causes discontent, causes not trusting God. It causes sometimes family division because people don't want to be around people who worry all the time, afraid of what's going to happen. Worrying is unfounded fear of the unknown. Most of the things that we worry about never come to pass. So why don't we trust the God of the universe who knows the past, the present, and the future to meet our needs at the time that we're going to need them instead of worrying about them. I think the difference between concern and worry is you can have a legitimate concern and follow through on something that you can do something about. But I think worry is failing to give up control over the things that we can't control anyway. So give God the control that's his in the first place. Cast your cares upon him. Oh, that word control. We all want to control everything in our lives. And when we can't, we worry. So Jesus reminds them in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they weep, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? As I read that, I see a promise from God. We are created in the image of God. Animals don't have souls. God wants to meet our needs and will, just as he meets the needs of all the animals that are out there. And then he says in verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Well, that's something we worry about is when we're going to die or how long we're going to live. We have no control over our lives or our circumstances, but God does. So why don't we instead turn it over to him and let him be in control and find joy in what he's given us and the time he's given us instead of worrying about it? And see what he does with it. Sometimes we worry so much about something, and God is already working on whatever it is. He sometimes surprises us with what he has been working on, and we look back and think, if I had only known, I wouldn't have worried so much. God is in control. He goes on to say in Matthew 6, 28, And why are you worried about clothing? Observes how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon... In all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? There's another promise there, and that is that God's going to clothe us. Remember, the two things they needed was food and clothing. So he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. When our son was born, and I've shared this story many times, but when he was born, he was born with major medical issues. I didn't know what the future was going to hold, and I was worried and scared. I'd grown to love him so much by the time he needed to go back into surgery. God gave me a verse in Matthew ten thirty-seven because in my time of worry, I went to God to let him take care of it. And in Matthew ten thirty-seven, he says he loves Father, mother, son, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I love Bob more than I loved him. And that was a conviction that I allowed my worry to focus me on the world instead of focusing on God. 
I confessed that. I turned to God. And I'm telling you, we went into the surgery with great joy. Our whole attitude was different because we trusted God. Even if God chose to take his life, we trusted God with that. So if we will take our focus off of the problem and put it onto God, he's the one that's going to take care of it. That's why he said in Matthew 6, verse 30, you of little faith. It's our lack of faith that causes us to worry. It was my lack of faith that caused me to worry about my son. But I tell you, that was one of the greatest faith builders of my life, was turning my heart over to God and trusting him with my son. God chose to heal him, but that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always go the way we want it to. Will we trust God when it goes God's way, whether we like it or not? Because you realize that God loved Bob more than even you loved Bob. And once you realize that, then you can totally trust him. In Matthew 6, 31, do not worry then about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear for clothing. Now, that's interesting because that's the, almost an exact quote on how he starts this in Matthew six twenty-five. So he's repeating it, kind of ending with the same thought. And he says, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. There's another promise. God knows we need all of these things. He's our father. Do you think he's going to leave us out in the wilderness? No, he wants to take care of us. Maybe he's allowing these problems in our lives so we will learn to trust him more, to turn to him and to see how he does things. Because I have found by my faith being built through difficult times that I can trust in him. Ephesians 3.20 reminds us that God is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. So why don't we trust God? God's plans are so much better than ours. Let's put our hearts in his heart. Let him take control of things. So how do we overcome worry? Well, it gives us the answer in Matthew 6, 33 and 34. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's another promise. Is that just because you're a child of God? No, if you seek him first and his righteousness. Put God first. And then in verse 34, it says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That always reminds me that every day is going to be full of some kind of trouble on this earth because it's a sinful world. So aren't we better off seeking first his kingdom? Because then he will walk us through every single issue. We're told in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He doesn't want us to hold on to those things in our hearts because they will destroy us. He wants us to put them on his shoulders. In Matthew 4, 6, and 7, a companion verse, we're reminded, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we not be anxious according to that? We pray. And pray there, by the way, is a time of praising God for who he is, putting him as number one, giving his kingdom the righteousness, not ours. And then we give supplication, which is asking for our needs. And we always do it with thanksgiving, knowing that God's in charge and he has a plan for each one of us. 
Going back to scripture again, another great verse that we can use for our goal is Philippians 3, 7 through 9. Debbie, tell us what that says. Well, it begins by saying, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Understand, this is Paul speaking right here. Paul was the creme de la creme in the Jewish community. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a a legal expert. He was a staunch Jew. Everything about him was perfect. And he says here, all of that that was gained to me, I've counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. He goes on to say, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And you say, well, what does this have to do with worry? Oh, so much. Paul lost everything. He could have been miserable. He could have been grumbling. He could have said, I quit. I'm not going to do this anymore. He was treated very poorly by his own people and the people he was trying to help. But instead of focusing on what he used to have, he focused on God. He didn't worry about what was happening or what he was going through. Instead, he said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ, drawing closer to God, understanding his relationship with him, learning who he was and how he was able to serve him was the most important thing in his life. And he goes on to say, he counts him as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, what causes us to worry? It's fear. What's the opposite of fear? It's faith. Paul is saying here that his righteousness doesn't come from the law, it comes from faith in Jesus Christ. It's the basis of faith that keeps us from worrying. He ends this passage by saying that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul wasn't focused on what he didn't have or what his problems were. Instead, his faith grew stronger through the problems that he endured. And because of that, his goal was to know Christ, to walk with him, to hear him, to talk with him, to pray with him, and not just to know him, but to know the power of his resurrection so that he could see God working. And then he wanted the fellowships of Christ's sufferings. We want to say, God, take away the problem. We don't want to have suffering, but the suffering draws us closer to Christ. As he says here, he's conformed to Christ's death when he goes through suffering. That should be our goal, because if it is to know Christ more, to draw closer to him, we won't have a care in the world, because we will fully trust him. We will have faith in Jesus Christ that is so strong in knowing who he is and seeing his plan, we won't have anything to worry about. So, will we let go and let God take charge of everything, our money as we talked about it, but also anything that causes anxiety or might cause us to worry? Will we trust in him with all of our hearts and not lean on our understanding? When we do that, we have great peace and we have nothing to worry about because God's ways are so much better than our ways. 
Will you take whatever's on your heart today that's bothering you and turn it over to God? Will you trust him with it? If I could trust God with my son, my firstborn son, whom I love dearly, you could trust God with anything and he'll take care of it for his glory and for your trusting in him. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.